In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And good morning. St. Mark begins his gospel so abruptly. Everything that Mark does seems to be abrupt. In fact, the word immediately is found nine times just in the first chapter alone. Everything is being done immediately. Uh, but this abrupt start, it had me really struggling with, uh, with how to start this sermon. You know, do I find a funny story or do I uh, think about some reflections on a, on a theme before we uh, get started? I was struggling with how to begin. And so I did something that I don't normally do when I'm preparing a sermon. I listened to someone else's sermon on, on this passage. Um, not that I was going to copy it, but um, his name is Paul Tripp. He's a little austere, but he, he speaks to me. And, and in his sermon, he, uh, he really caught me up short. Uh, he said that one of the dangers for pastors is that we become so familiar with the words and the stories that the words and the stories just sort of become words on a page and we can lose our awe of the magnificent message. The, the message that God Himself would break into our world and would become a man. And He would become a man to save us from our sins so that we might know and be known by the God of the universe. And then He asked a question. He said, Have you lost your awe? Have you lost your awe? And I just, like I wanted to pull over uh, and, and cry. I mean, I, I, just, um, I just had to, had to be honest. That I realized that I had been working really hard to be right and to be clever and to be clear and let's be honest, to be impressive. And in the midst of all that, I was worried about some things and I was frustrated with some people and I was feeling a little sorry for myself, honestly. But I was not in awe of the gospel. I was not in awe of the fact that God Almighty would shed the light of His grace and His mercy on me. That He would do so through the life and death and ministry and resurrection of His own Son. I was not in awe of the fact that His grace was sufficient for everything I was worrying about. And for a little while, I found myself standing on the wrong side of that bold line that Mark draws abruptly with his first 13 words. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I mean, we can kind of skim past those words. They're, they sound introductory. They sound kind of bible -y. Or we can just sit still and let those 13 words hit us like the lightning bolt that they are. And I don't mind telling you that I spent some time uh, in confession, just remembering that this passage sort of began to set me back on the path towards awe. The beginning 
of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It harkens intentionally back to the very first page, the very first words in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And just as that famous narrative is the account of God's creation of all that there is, so this begins the account of God's recreation of all that is. This is the beginning of the Gospel. And this isn't just the beginning of Mark's book. Like, I mean, we refer to this account of the whole book about the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus as a Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the Gospels. But this isn't just the beginning of that genre. This is the beginning of Mark's proclamation. This is the beginning of his particular message. This is the beginning of the good news that God is breaking in to a broken and sinful world on a rescue mission. The word there, we have the words good news, and that translates one word in Greek. It's euangelion. It's the word, you can kind of hear it in there, euangelion. You can kind of hear the word uh, evangel or evangelistic, evangelism. It's, it's a, uh, it actually had, it was a word that had a secular meaning in the Greek and Roman cultures. That when there was a, uh, a, a great military victory, or when there was a new Caesar, that they didn't have the internet And so they had to send a herald to trumpet the good news. It was the euangelion. It was the proclamation that that there was a new king or that there was a great victory. And they would go from town to town to tell everyone the good news. The euangelion. And the expectation was that the whole village would celebrate and share in the good news. The euangelion was for all people. And it's for us. Because there has been a great victory. There's a new king. But Mark makes a stunning declaration about this this new king of his euangelion. He says that he is the son of God. Now where the universal expectation for the coming Christ was that he would be some sort of anointed military leader, Mark declares right up front, right at the beginning of the Gospel, that Jesus is far more than they expected. He is the Son of God. Which is to say, He is not only divine in nature, but that He is uniquely worthy of our devout worship and our full allegiance. God is breaking in God is becoming a man in order to save us from our sin so that we might know and be known by the God of the universe. But I want you to notice something. As you look at this passage, you look at the beginning of the Gospel, you'll notice that the beginning doesn't start with Christmas. The beginning, you might think that the beginning of the good news about Jesus would start with Jesus. But in fact, the good news of Jesus begins before Jesus. And think about your own story. In one sense, your story begins on the day that you were born. 
But really, your story started generations before. At least your story uh, started uh, with how your parents met, where they decided to live, what their lives were like, what their traditions were. Your story is part of a greater story. And how many generations could we go back to get to your story? And Mark is saying right out of the gate, what you need to know is that Jesus didn't just appear on the scene. He wasn't just some charismatic figure. He wasn't just a good teacher. He did not represent something new. His story started way before he did. That Mark is saying that the ancient prophets who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, that they were pointing in this Christward direction all along. And they said that there was going to be one who comes before the Christ. One who would prepare the way for the Lord. And so that's where Mark picks up the story. The subtle reference to Genesis and, and with Isaiah foretelling the order in which things would come, it's not new. It's not happenstance. It is the direction and the anticipation of the entire Old Testament. So Mark picks up the story before Jesus began His ministry when John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people are coming in droves. They're coming, they're coming in droves from all over the Judean countryside. All the people of Jerusalem, Mark tells us. All the people of Jerusalem, they're leaving the massive temple laden with gold. And they're leaving the fine robes of the priests and the ordered worship and the ritual sacrifice to come to a muddy river and a wild man who eats bugs. What is Mark saying here? Some see this as an, an indictment of the religious system of the day, and there may be some merit to that, but what I think that Mark is saying even more is that it is in the place of our own wilderness that God begins the story of our redemption and our rescue. It is in that place of isolation, that place of wandering, that place where we have lost our all. In that place of wildness and lostness where God Almighty begins or begins again His saving conversation with us. There's a famous German painting finished in about 1516 by a relatively little known artist named Matthias Grunewald. And the piece is called the Eisenheim Altarpiece. It's really famous. You can Google it after the sermon, during the piece. Um, and um, Eisenheim Altarpiece. It's, it is a massive triptych. And it, is painted, it was painted originally to be hung in a monastery uh, over the altar in Germany. But at the center is this graphic depiction of Jesus hanging on the cross. But at the bottom of the cross, at the foot of the cross, just to the right, uh, there is standing there pointing a long bony finger up to the cross is John the Baptist. The wild man in the wilderness. And we know that John was beheaded long before Christ was crucified. But Grunewald is making a very clear, anachronistic 
but clear point that John the Baptist's prophecy-fulfilling duty was always to point ahead to the one who was to come. That he was always pointing to the cross. And the Gospel of John says it like this. In the first chapter he says, uh, the light, that's Jesus, the light shines in the darkness. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came that all might bear witness about the light. The author Baxter Kruger noted that even when the light was shining, the darkness was so dark that it needed someone to point out the light. And John the Baptist is pointing that bony finger to the light confirming what Mark has already told us, that Jesus is the Son of God. For so great was Jesus. So great was this Christ, this Son of God, that John said he was not worthy even to stoop down and take the most menial task, the most junior servant, to untie his sandals. John saw Jesus for who he was. John had not lost his awe. Now, why does this matter for you and me? This wild man in the wilderness, this ancient story, this son of God. Well, it matters because of what it is that keeps you up at night. It matters because of the secret that you can't tell anyone. It matters because of the insecurity that you're carrying around and the grief that you bear, and the pride that you celebrate, and the anger that you're nursing. It matters because of all the ways that we cherry-pick what we want to believe about God. It matters because God is breaking through all of that on a rescue mission. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the genesis of recreation. God loves you. But God has not come to affirm you. God has not come to tell you that you're great just the way you are. He loves you too much for that. He would never condemn you to that. He has come to save you, to make you His own, and to give you the relationship with Himself that He created you for. But the relationship which we could not initiate uh, for ourselves. The bony finger of John the Baptist points to the gospel. The good news of God's incarnate love. Jesus Christ. He is for you. And He is for you. May we hold Him in our hearts. May we never lose our awe. Amen.